The title of the message is Something Beautiful. And before we look at our passage, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege it is to explore your word together. And we're eager to see, Lord, what the early church did, how they, how they lived in light, in view of the reality of who you are in Christ. And God, we pray that, Lord, we would be shaped by what we see here, that we'd be inspired, that we'd be moved, Lord. Lead us by your spirit, we pray. Bring this alive. Drive it deep into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. A politically explosive, racially divided cultural center. Antioch was a city of wealth and power and popularity. It was known for its immorality and polytheism. And this is where a group of unnamed men brought the good news of Jesus. And what formed is something beautiful. A local church community that pushed against racial divide. A local church community that pushed against the cultural norms of the city of Antioch. Pushed against hatred and idolatry, division. And it did so with the love and grace of Jesus. So the church we find in the city of Antioch, it's the first of its kind, but it's definitely not the last. You know, many of us can look back at an event or a conversation that led to a watershed moment in our lives. A moment that brought a radical shift in our beliefs or our behavior. It impacted the way we lived. Now we might say it was earth shattering because everything was different after this event, after this conversation. And that's exactly what Peter and the early church was going through. A watershed moment, an earth shattering event. Before we find the church in Antioch, before we see something beautiful happening there, we're going to look at something new that was completely earth-shattering to Peter and the early church. So three things this morning, actually. We're going to look at something new, something different, and something beautiful. First, let's look at something new. We'll begin here in Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 1. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying and in, a, in, a, in a trance, had a vision. I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea, stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. 
As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if, John, if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even the Gentiles, God has granted, to even the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. We'll stop there for a moment. Something new. You know, Peter's vision and his visit with Cornelius the centurion is so important, it's being repeated. We learned about this story last week. So of all the things to write, Luke, the author of Acts, decides to record Peter, who's back in Jerusalem answering a very concerned group of Jewish followers of Jesus. They want to know why on earth he went into the house of an uncircumcised man and ate with him, had table fellowship with him. This was to them appalling. They're called the circumcised believers. How would you like that name? They were separate. They were a vocal group emphasizing the need to be circumcised in order to follow Christ. You had to become Jewish, have these identity markers that were Jewish identity markers before embracing Jesus. They criticize Peter. They want answers. And it's important that we really understand the political and social and cultural climate of the day. Tension was super high between Jew and non-Jew. Beyond that, the early church was trying to figure out how to honor Jesus and how to honor the Mosaic laws that were given, the Old Testament laws that were given. How do we faithfully follow Jesus? So there were the actual laws given to Israel by God to be carried out, involving purity laws and dietary laws and sacrificial laws. And then there were these customs. These were additional things added for the intent of helping them keep God's law. So to enter a non-Jew's home and then to eat with him, to have this table fellowship, to express this intimacy, was to mark yourself as unclean before God. It's a big deal. So they're saying, what's up, Peter? What are you doing? And it required humility for Peter to make the adjustment that he made. He entered Cornelius' house. But he understood there was no denying it. God was doing something new. One author describes the law as being equivalent of the national flag at a time when the whole nation felt under intense and increasing pressure. I think that's a good comparison. Well, Peter retells the story verbatim with a few important details added that we didn't hear before. And the details uh, really help explain what's going on. In verse 14, he explains, as he's telling the story again of entering Cornelius' house, he, he, re- he tells uh, those gathered in Jerusalem that the angel told Cornelius that he, or Simon Peter, will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. And then in verse 16, he says, Peter says, then I remembered what the Lord Jesus said, what Jesus said. You'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So who was I to get in the way of what God was doing? And this is all about recognizing the sign of the promise. 
This is the outpouring of God's spirit, this new covenant relationship with the living God. And it's not just for Jews, it's for non-Jews. It's an international message. This promise of renewal, this promise of restoration and relationship. Now, Peter's conclusion, who was I to stand in God's way? He's doing a new thing. In verse 18, I love the message uh, and how it uh, translates verse 18. It says this, hearing it all laid out like that, they quieted down, and then as it sank in, and, and boy, did it have to sink in. This is a paradigm shift for the church in Jerusalem, that Gentiles are being let in. As it sank in, they started to praise God. It's really happened. God has broken through to the other nations. He's opened them up to life. Now, this had been prophesied. Valerie read it actually out of Isaiah, a light to the nations. Israel was always meant to be a light to the nations. It was through Israel that that Jesus would come. But Jesus was for everyone. It wasn't just for Israel. The matter is settled then, at least for now. Gentiles who trust in Jesus become full members of of the new and rapidly growing community of Jesus' followers. You don't need Jewish identity markers in order to have an identity in Christ. So God has pushed wide open the door to the nations. So today, we might nod our heads and say, yes, of course. Here we are, 2,000 years later, the nations, a bunch of Gentiles here embracing Jesus. This is good. It's not so earth-shattering to us to think of that reality, but the church, the early church, was wrestling with what does it look like now to reach the nations? How are we faithfully going to do that? And how is the law fulfilled in Christ? And all these things, these are good things to wrestle with, and it's good for us to see the progression here. But today, what are we tempted with? Today, we might be tempted to believe that in order to follow Jesus, we need to first do something that will mark us as okay to proceed. The circumcised group of believers were were, were putting forward that you need to be circumcised. You need Jewish identity markers in order to proceed. What are we tempted to believe? We got to clean up our life before we can pursue God. We got to clean up our life before we can begin to follow Jesus. We've got to do something and then we can follow Jesus. What's the something that we're putting in front of Jesus? The formula might go something like something plus Jesus equals salvation or relationship or finally kind of in this place where I I, I know God will accept me. We're muddying the waters. It's not something plus Jesus. It's nothing plus Jesus. It's our faith, and that's a gift from God in what Christ accomplished for us. That's what it is. Grace is so radical. When we do something plus Jesus, that's just a little concoction of our own making. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Listen, grace is undeserved. It's unearned. We didn't earn this position before God. Now, this is incomprehensible to some, and to be honest, it's straight offensive to others. Like, what? what? I want to bring something to the table. You know what you brought to the table? Your sin and brokenness. That's what we bring to the table. But God in his grace and mercy brings forgiveness. He's paved the way through Jesus. 
And we don't need to add something to the finished work of Christ. It's a finished work. It's sufficient. The sacrifice that Jesus paid, the the price that he paid on the cross is sufficient. We don't need to add any sacrifice to it. You and I are tempted to try to add to the finished work of Jesus. Have you responded to grace? What's it doing to you? How is it impacting you? You So Peter understood this was an unexpected paradigm shift for sure for the church. He was humbled by it. And I so respect Peter and the early church leaders for making this shift and seeing, wow, God, you're doing this. This is totally unexpected. I didn't didn't expect this. But we're we're, going to submit ourselves to your plan, to this unfolding story of redemption. In Christ, there is no distinction In Christ, God is doing something new beyond our imaginations. It's not something plus Jesus. Number two, something different. We looked at something new. Now we want to look at something different. This is groundbreaking stuff. We'll pick up here in verse 19. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia... Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was on them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them, all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for uh, Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. We'll pause there. Something different's happening. Something groundbreaking. We're told about an unnamed group of first followers of Jesus who had scattered due to the persecution brought after the death of Stephen. If you remember the first martyr of the early church, he was stoned to death and Saul was right there approving of what was happening. The opposition that tried to snuff out the early church pushed them into areas that they wouldn't have gone had the opposition, the persecution not been there. But the good news of Jesus went with them. Wherever they went, And it tells us that some men from the nearby island of Cyprus and the North African region of Cyrene, they're singled out and they're highlighted for us. They're not named. I love that. They're anonymous. They go to Antioch and they begin to preach to the Greeks also. Now, this is a big deal. They go to Greeks and they're telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. They they knew by this time the reach of God's love in Christ that there were no bounds, no boundaries. He had no favorites. We learned this last week. They knew the reach of God's love. Here are unknown people doing significant things. How many people in history have we never heard about? How many people in history have unmarked graves that have done extraordinary things for the kingdom of God? Ordinary people with extraordinary news. I'm inspired by this. I feel very ordinary. 
I don't know about you, you might think to yourself, man, you know, you read about Saul and all of his journeys and his exploits and his, his, his adventures, and I'm not going to be an apostle. I mean, that's Saul, you know? That's, you read about other guys, other characters in the scriptures, but here is this, this unnamed group of followers of Jesus. They're just, they're scattering due to the persecution, due to the opposition. They find themselves in Antioch, this cultural hub, this beautiful city, the third largest city. Uh, you got Rome and Alexandria, and then you have Antioch, so like over 500,000 people gathered, beautiful buildings, a smelting pot of a place of languages and culture, worship of idols, it's all over the place. They find themselves there, and they decide, oh, they decide something wonderful. They understand the gospel is for everyone, so they begin to preach Christ. They bring Christ to the Greeks, and God's hand is on it. We associate significance and greatness with the amount of followers somebody has, the amount of likes someone has on their Instagram feed, how many books they've written. We have to guard our hearts. Who is significant in your eyes? Who's great in your eyes? What about those unnamed servants of the Lord who are going into difficult places and being faithful to the gospel they've embraced? They're not making a name for themselves. Who do we hold up? Who do we look up to? Who do we want to be like? I want to be like these unnamed men who take the gospel to Antioch. That's who I want to be like. A new church made up of predominantly non-Jews located in the city of Antioch, the capital city of the Roman province of Syria. I said this, it's the third largest city of the day. At least half a million people This was a crossroads of culture and trade. Man, this is a happening city. And it says in verse 21, the Lord's hand was with them. God's favor and grace was on what they were doing. Something new had taken place in Jesus, and the early church then embraced that and ran with it. And so now it produced something different. What's different? Something never before seen. A multi-ethnic community of followers of Jesus. This is very different. Jews, non-Jews, getting along in the same community, following Jesus. We're talking about Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews, getting together, getting along, embracing Christ as king in a city where tensions between the two were so high. Listen, that only years before this, thousands upon thousands of Jews were killed and then in retaliation by Gentiles and then in retaliation The high priest in Jerusalem sends this delegation to strike revenge on the Gentiles in Antioch. And then in response, Caesar, Caesar at the time, uh, goes and beheads the high priest in Jerusalem. There's so much tension, and this is just a little slice of the tension that was happening in the culture of the day. In the midst of all that, what do you have? This beautiful church made up of Jew and Gentile. Eventually, tensions would boil over in 70 AD, 30 years down the road, leading to a massive revolt, which would be the bloodiest and most disastrous war in in Jewish history. What would happen in 70 AD? Jerusalem would be sacked. The temple would be completely destroyed. 
So I want you to think it was in the midst of that kind of boiling political and cultural tension that something different was emerging, something beautiful, the church, a church that pushed against racial divide, a church that pushed against the cultural norms, a church that pushed against hatred and bigotry and division with love and grace, a church that understood that they were saved by grace, undeserved, unearned, and that there was no boundary to this grace. It was for everyone. A church filled with individuals who had turned away from the Greek god of Apollo or Artemis or Zeus or from Syrian cults of Baal or the so-called mother goddess. These were popular gods in Antioch. We might get weirded out or freaked out at what, what others are embracing. We might think, man, there's so much in our culture, in our city that's just pushing against Christianity. Well, look at Antioch. Look at the cultural and political tension Look at all the various beliefs and temples. If you read about the ancient city of Antioch, people were doing some really bizarre things in that city. It was known for its immorality. And that's where the church thrived. Stood in stark contrast to what was happening in the city. This is where the gospel was brought. It's where it thrived. And this is where we want to bring the gospel. Right here in the city of St. Pete. To be this beautiful display of God's grace at work in our lives. And not because we're puffing ourselves up and we think, man, we're awesome. No, God's awesome. And what he's done through Christ. And we've, we've just come to see this, this, this beauty and this love that he's displayed in Jesus. We've embraced it. And we want others to treasure this same love and beauty in Christ. We want to bring others along, see him for who he is. So in the midst of political and social and all the tension that can come our way, I want us to find courage to stand strong, to hold Christ up, to believe that God's going to do a great work here in this city. Verse 22, Barnabas is sent to check it all out. He's sent from Jerusalem as a representative of the church there. We could say Jerusalem was the mother church, and they, 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 they sent Barnabas to go investigate what was happening. When he arrived, he saw, quote, the evidence of the grace of God. That's what he saw, and I just love that. He saw God's grace at work in the lives of those who were part of the church of Antioch. Does that sound familiar? Something we love to do here is to highlight God's grace. If you're around for any length of time, from time to time, uh, we uh, highlight what we call local stories. Local stories are simply God's grace at work in the lives of those who are part of local church St. Pete. We want to take a slice of people's lives and, and highlight it, see where God is working. Maybe they're telling their story of how they came to faith. Maybe they're just sharing something that they've grown in recently or they've learned. But God's at work in this community. We want to hear from the individuals who make up local church St. Pete. We want to celebrate that grace. When Barnabas came on the scene in Antioch, that's what he saw. He saw God's grace at work. And that's what he celebrated. I love Barnabas. He sounds like a really cool guy. You know, it requires humility and faith to see God's grace at work. It requires humility and grace and faith to see God's grace at work in other people's lives. Barnabas doesn't focus on their weaknesses. Do you think this young church had weaknesses? Sure it did. He doesn't focus on those weaknesses. Instead, he had faith in God's ability to change people. He chose to focus on what God had already done and, and could do in their lives. I want, to, I want to do that. I want us to do that. 
It's going to require humility and faith. Can you see it? Can you look into the lives of the people around you and see God's grace at work? Can you celebrate it? What do we celebrate and why? These are important questions as we move forward as a church. Because what we celebrate, we become. We become what we celebrate. It's true. He chose to focus on what God had done. Grace is God's undeserved favor and kindness. It's evidenced in their lives. Barnabas saw it. And Barnabas goes on. He encourages them. And he says this in verse 23. He says, remain true to the Lord with all your hearts. That's his encouragement to them. Remain true to the Lord with all your hearts. In the RSV version, it says, with steadfast purpose. In the NET, it says, with devoted hearts. The idea uh, behind Barnabas' encouragement to the church was steadfastness. That's the main idea. He's encouraging this young church filled with uh, Jews and non-Jews to be steadfast and immovable, to have resolve and purpose and devotion that's connected to your heart. Now, what's that mean? The center of who you are. We need this kind of encouragement. Keep going. Keep going. Don't give up. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Keep pressing in to the Lord. Remain true. Don't compromise. Remain true to the Lord with all your heart. Be devoted. Give yourself wholly to the Lord. That's the kind of encouragement I need. That's the kind of encouragement we all need. Do you have a Barnabas in your life who can encourage you this way? Will you be a Barnabas in someone else's life? I remember back in my senior year of high school, I was at a Bible study with Valerie. We were, we were dating at the time. We go way back. <laughs> and this, as, uh, first time I've been to this Bible study, and this older gentleman across the, the room, he singles me out, and he tells me this verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. And it says this, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I was grateful. I hid it in my heart. I never knew how important that verse would be. I have fallen on that verse so many times in desperation. Stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, knowing this, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Oh, even the stuff that feels in vain as you do it unto the Lord, it's not for nothing. So stand firm. Don't let anything move you. You're going to have all kinds of turmoil inside. You're going to have all kinds of uh, opposition from the outside. Stand firm firm. Stand firm in Christ. Know who Jesus is and what he's done for you and who you are in him. Stand firm in him. Let nothing move you and give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. I needed to hear that my senior year of high school. I I need to hear that right now all the time. I hide that verse. I fall on that verse. I pray that verse. I look to that verse. Steadfast. Church, we need to be steadfast. Barnabas had this word of encouragement, remain true to the Lord with all your hearts. His character is highlighted. Barnabas's character is highlighted. Why do you think his character is highlighted so much? They, they describe Barnabas. Luke was really, he really liked Barnabas. As he's writing the book of Acts, he's highlighting Barnabas's character. Because who you are is what you reproduce. Now you can talk all you want, but really who you are is what you reproduce. And we see that in our kids. That's why parenting is so humbling. (laughs) We're like, oh, that's me. 
That's me, and I hate it. Who you are is what you reproduce. How you lead grows out of who you are. And that's why in Timothy and Titus, when you look for qualifications for an elder or a pastor, what's most highlighted? Their character. Their character. It will require character to do what Barnabas does next for this church. His concern is not to make a name for himself. His concern is the well-being of the church of Antioch. And so he clearly thinks they need someone else to teach them. He needs help and they need help. So what does he do? Well, naturally, he goes to look for the man that helped kill his friend. Kill his friend. He goes to look for Saul of Tarsus, the one who approved of Stephen's killing. But by then, Saul had encountered the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, and by that time, Barnabas had already brought Saul before the apostles. He stood with him. Now, this is almost 10 years later. We don't really get that as we're reading through Acts, but we're talking, there's like a 10-year span or almost a 10-year span, and Barnabas goes looking for Saul to bring him back to Antioch to help this young church that's filled with Jews and non-Jews because Barnabas knew the call on Saul's life. He understood that he had encountered Christ, and Christ said that, you would, that he would be a witness to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. So Barnabas goes after Saul. And he brings them to Antioch, and for the whole year, they're teaching this church. God's hand is upon them. I wonder what those, those uh, teaching series looked like, you know. I'm sure they had really cool slides and all that kind of stuff, yeah. You know what's really neat about this relationship between Paul or Saul and, and Barnabas? I mean, Saul's name would be Paul later, but no room for bitterness or hatred here. He refused to let their relationship be defined by the past. They walk together now in Christ. How sweet is that? How beautiful of a testimony is that? Barnabas knew that God had done a redeeming work in Saul, and that was enough for Barnabas. Who has encouraged you along the way? Who has influenced you in your faith? Character and encouragement brings others on board. It lets them serve. It gets out of the way. And it makes a way for others. You know why? There's no jealousy. There's, when, when, when there's a man or a woman of character and they see someone else who's gifted, they want to get out of the way and let them serve. Just cheer them on. You go. Keep, go, keep, keep running. Use that gift. And that's exactly what Barnabas did with Saul. Because he was interested in the well-being of the church of Antioch. I love that. And here we're told that the People of Antioch, the Christians, or the, the community in Antioch, they were, they were called Christians for the first time. And it was most likely a derogatory statement, much like Methodists or P- Protestants was uh, as well, but they're called Christians, little Christ, or the king's people, the Christ people. But that's exactly what they were. Their lives reflected the life of Jesus. Their name, according to those in the city of Antioch, those that gave them that name, their name revealed their allegiance to Christ. They are Christians, and we've carried that name since. Finally, we've seen something new, we've seen something different, and now something beautiful, life-giving. Let's keep going. Acts 11, verse 27. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. 
This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Something beautiful. Agabus comes. He's bringing edification and encouragement. He is a prophet, and he's there to strengthen the church. But he also challenges them and tells them that there is a severe famine coming. This is revealed by the Holy Spirit for them to get ready and for them to be a blessing to others. So each according to their ability, and I love that, each according to their ability decides to provide help for for their brothers and sisters in Judea, in Jerusalem. Because Judea would be hit the hardest by this famine. And there's all kinds of reasons for that that we don't have time to get into. But they understood, the church in Antioch, made up of Jews and non-Jews, they understood that the church in Jerusalem, made up of predominantly all Jews, that their family were brothers and sisters. So in the face of cultural tension and in the midst of their own uncertain future, what did the church in Antioch do? They gave their best and they sent their best. They put monies together in the, in the face of knowing there is a famine coming and it will impact us. But we're going to put our funds together and be a blessing to where it's going to hit the most. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to send Saul and Barnabas. We're going to send our best to deliver this, this offering. So across geographical and ethnic boundaries, they, display, they displayed unity, care, and love. It's this kind of selflessness a selflessness that remains a bold testimony to the power and the grace of Jesus at work in our lives. This is just a selflessness. Whatever the political, whatever the social, whatever the cultural pressures we face, we're, we're going to always have the disarming love of God, the disarming love of Jesus that we can walk in. It's powerful. The church in Antioch, it was a diverse it was a sacrificial and a missional church. It was started by an anonymous group of followers of Jesus. They were pioneers. They went into an area that there was no gospel representation, and they brought Jesus with them. They believed the good news of Jesus was for everyone, and they lived it. We don't need to know their names. God knows their name. They obeyed the call to make disciples, to be disciples who are making disciples. And now it's our turn. And the the mission field is before us. We're in it. We're in this beautiful city of St. Pete, this melting pot of ideas and beliefs and people. There's all kinds of tension of various kinds. We don't need to let it scare us. We don't need to go on thinking that the gospel and that the church can't thrive in this culture or in the atmosphere we live in. It can. It is. It will God's at work. Antioch is so refreshing, the church we find there. I want to be like that. I want us to be like that. It was the first of its kind, but it's not the last. You are just like Antioch. We. Jesus is still doing something new and different and beautiful. What do you think? You want to be like Antioch? We'll give our best. We'll send our best for the sake of the gospel. When opposition comes our way, we won't let it dampen this extraordinary message of hope and life and love that we have. That we don't need to be this person out front, everyone applauding, 
everyone knows our name, to be really great and to have significance. Unnamed, anonymous pioneers bringing the gospel to a city that desperately needed it, and it thrived. Let's pray that for St. Pete right now. Lord, we feel like very ordinary people because that's what we are, but you're an extraordinary God, and you've put us here in this city. We ask that you would use us. Use us to bring your love and grace expressed in Jesus, to push against all the, the boundaries and the barriers, to put, push against all the cultural norms and all the tension, the racial tension. Lord, would you just break all of that? Would you give us vision and faith? Lord, help us to believe. Lord, you have begun a great thing here, and you'll, con- you'll continue to work in and through us. God, help us to lean on you in every way. Help us to be so, God, moved by the grace in our own lives that we cannot help but invite people in to see, Lord, who you are. God, we love you, we worship you, and we thank you for what we've seen here in Scripture, that this church in Antioch is something beautiful. Thank you for the beautiful work, Lord, you're doing here. Continue it, we pray, for your namesake and glory. Amen.